Welcome if you're visiting with us. Uh, we are glad that you're here. Let me kind of give you a, a little insight into what's about to happen. Um, in 15 years, we've done this twice before. And the last time that we did what we're doing together this morning was about 10 years ago, something like that. Isn't that right, Scott? Or Scott? Yes. About 10 years ago. So it's a pretty special morning. You've come on a, a morning where you're going to get a, a window into who we are. Uh, you're going to get a window into who we've been. Um, Man, we're a fragile, frail, um, human bunch. I mean, made of the same stuff as every other church. Uh, one of the things I think that is one of our characteristics as a people is that we kind of kind of have our stuff kind of out there. I mean, thankfully, we're not the good news. Amen? I mean, at the message we preach about a Savior crucified and risen is our good news. And sometimes that's coupled with some real black eyes and just some... Stuff that you're like, man, I, I can't believe this just happened. I can't believe I just did this. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of that this morning. You're going to have a little window into that. And um, so I, I, I encourage you to, um, well, let me just say, just welcome. I, I'm going to let the, just ask that the Holy Spirit will have his will with, uh, his will will be done with you and your visit here. That um, it may alarm you. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to be anything crazy, but it may be crazy compared to what you're used to. Maybe a little more honest than what you're used to, and not implying someone's dishonest, but a little more vulnerable, maybe a better word. Uh, but it, it's a meaningful time together we have week after week, and we kind of view ourselves as gathering as family. And as family, we should have times where we're really just kind of, hey, here we are. Here we are. And we're not going to um, uh, wear rose-colored glasses. Uh, we're going to be honest. We're going to be open. We're going to be vulnerable. And we're going to be fueled by worship, this amazing scandal of the gospel that we're walking in. So... I hope and pray that this morning will be all of those things for you if you're visiting and if you're regular, if you're part of our church family. Uh, if you're part of our church family, I think you probably have a view and a window into what was building uh, coming up to this Sunday, and you recognize what a high and important Sunday this is. Uh, I want to begin, or I want to continue our time together in prayer and pray about how we're going to spend these few minutes. Uh, I want to pray for a local church, uh, another church in our community, for Christ Community Church. And we're going to pray for one of our own, a little dude named Trevor and his family. Most of his family is here this morning. Um, very critical 10 days that he's in. And we as a people want to pray. Let's pray. What a fine, fine morning. What a high day, Lord. You've given us such a wonderful wonderful 15 years together, and we um, have a, an opportunity this morning to step into a new chapter. And Lord, we are excited. Lord, I just pray that these few minutes that we spend together will really honor you and glorify you as a good father first, but secondly, as a good shepherd that has guided us and sustained us as a good God who's just been all-powerful to us in ways where we were completely helpless. What a, what a great, great God you have been to us. Lord, I pray in these few minutes that you'll be enjoyed, that your design of how you lead the local church will be on display. I pray that we will be on display not as pragmatists, looking for what works, but as worshipers looking for what your word says and moving according to your word with your design and your plan. 
Lord, I pray too that we want to lift up another church in our community. Just thankful for the chance to lift up Christ Community Church. And Rick and Julie Prettyman, uh, just thankful for his friendship and thankful for their shared work and ministry in our community. Lord, we're thankful for this church that has had a long presence in, in Greenville. Uh, we lift them up this morning. Pray that you would bless them. Pray that you would guide them and sustain them as you have us. Lord, I pray that in whatever way we can come alongside and partner with them well and complement the work that you're doing through them by the work you're doing through us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a window into that. Lord, uh, lastly, we want to lift up our little brother Trevor, and uh, we beg for his body. Lord, we know that you are Lord and sovereign and, and good and able over every cell in his body. Lord, we pray for the marrow that he has now uh, received from his brother, Lord, that that will be received like a, a welcome friend. Sustain this family, Lord. We love you and trust you. Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Turn to Exodus 18. Please. I'm going to be bossy. Okay, we're going to meet a guy this morning that I don't know that I've ever preached on this guy. His name is Jethro. I don't know why people aren't naming their kids Jethro. That's a good Bible name. A good southern name, too. I mean, come on. All these babies would be born up in here. We got to see a Jethro in the house for long. Please, this guy is like a hero this morning. We first meet him in chapters 2, 3, and 4 of the book of Exodus. When Moses uh, saw a couple of his uh, Israelite brothers being pushed around, he ended up murdering an Egyptian, and he had to flee Egypt, and he went to the land of Midian. And it was in the land of Midian that he shows up at a water trough, and he sees these gals that are feeding their sheep, or trying to feed their flocks, and they're actually being run off by the local shepherds, and he comes to their defense. And it turns out these, these gals are seven daughters of this guy named Jethro. Okay, so Jethro says, who is this guy? What has he done? Man, he sounds like a winner. Let's invite him into our home and let's eat bread. That's like old-fashioned, ancient way of saying, let's welcome this guy in and let's, let's spend some time together. Well, over the course of time, he gave Moses a job, and he actually gave Moses a wife from among his seven daughters. Her name was Zipporah. Okay, and Moses then married Zipporah and ended up having two children, Gershom and Eleazar. Okay, so we're sort of parachuting into chapter 18 with sort of that background knowledge of who this guy Jethro is. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read chapter 18, verses 1 through 23, and I'm going to give some commentary as I go. And then we're going to focus in on um, four or five little pieces within this big story to sort of uh, figure out what it has to say, what, what the Lord can say to us on this high day. Okay, so let's climb in. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. That's basically since chapter 4. They crossed the Red Sea, or they had the, the, the plagues, they had the, the Passover, they crossed the Red Sea. He'd heard about all these amazing things. He probably heard about food falling from the sky, water coming from a rock. These are familiar passages to us the last couple of weeks in Exodus chapter 16 and 17. I think even the adults are studying this, and maybe even the kids are studying this. Picking up in verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons, that's Moses' sons, and his wife, that's Moses' wife, Zipporah, to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. 
And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, and coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. That's an ancient uh, ritual, okay? But it, I think, too, it gives us a little window into Moses must have really thought a lot of this dude. I mean, he hadn't seen his wife and kids in a while. Now, we don't know that he didn't embrace them first. But at least the way the passage unfolds is like, hey, Jethro, it's so great to see you. Oh, there's your wife and two sons are over there to the side. I mean, he apparently means a lot to Moses. And that could be also cultural as well. But he makes a beeline for Jethro. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So they're going to catch up. It's a visit. It's an official visit from the in-laws. I don't know where Mrs. Jethro is, but at least Jethro's here. You know that first visit after you get married and the in-laws come to visit? Stressful. Okay, add the exodus to that, and it's super stressful. (laughs) All right, verse 6. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jephro, am coming to you with your wife and two sons. Moses, oh, yeah, I already read all that. Okay, let's pick up in verse 8. So then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done, you know, since chapter 4, since he left back for, um, or went back to the land of Egypt, recounting the deeds of the Lord. He, he shares with his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Recounting, man. Recounting. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in all that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. The visit from the in-laws is going really well so far. They have a lot to enjoy about what God has done. In verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Now, I don't know what priest he was of what in Midian, but I know right now he's worshiping Yahweh. Maybe this is the point where he becomes a priest of the high king of heaven. It's pretty cool. He's confessing that he's the greatest of all gods, this Yahweh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering. Okay, he's offering up a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel Okay, these would be representatives of all the tribes to eat bread. There it is again. We're going to hang out with Moses' father-in-law before God. I like to envision this point of what's taking place right here kind of in a a typical week. This would be like a Sunday evening. Okay, you had the the visit from the in-laws over the weekend. This would be like the Sunday evening potluck where you're going to invite everybody from the church. Man, my in-laws are in town, and it's going really well, and we have a lot to recount and enjoy. Let's have a potluck and all get together and eat some bread. Okay, hopefully you have more than bread at a potluck. But it's kind of like a Sunday evening potluck. And they're really enjoying the Lord and enjoying each other. The elders of, elders of Israel, Moses and Jethro. Okay, see the, all the ingredients there. Okay, that's Sunday night. Okay, they go to bed. And this Monday morning. Okay, Moses is like, well, Monday morning, y'all. It's been fun, you know, in-laws, you guys can hang out, but i got to go to work. Okay, so maybe Zipporah, maybe you can kind of maybe take um, Jethro and the boys and go do some, some uh, sightseeing or something because i got to go to work. You know what it's like when the, visit, when the in-laws visit and it moves on into Monday, but you still got to work. So Moses goes to work. Okay, so just watch Moses and what happens when he goes to work in verse 13. The next day... Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. 
When Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning to evening? Okay, this guy Jethro, that I'm just telling you, you're going to find him pretty wise today. Uh, You should also know that he was hospitable, taking in Moses, uh, that he's peaceable, that he's attentive. He's an attentive father-in-law. He speaks and he says, hey, Moses, what are you doing? And Moses said to his father-in-law, well, because the people come to me to first inquire of God. Secondly, they come to me when they have a dispute. And I need to decide between one person and another. And third, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Okay, so Jethro says, Moses, what in the wide world of sports are you doing? Sitting around with all these people coming to you from dusk to dawn. And Moses says, well, I'm doing these three things. I'm inquiring of God on their behalf. I'm settling their disputes, sort of judging their disputes. And I'm, I'm equipping them with the statutes of God and his laws, helping them see God's ways. Okay, so those, that's sort of the response. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. If we just stop right there, you got to go, wait a second. Jethro, I thought you were wise. I thought you were discerning. I thought you were attentive. What of those three things would not be good? Inquiring of the Lord, helping settle disputes, and then equipping them to see and understand God's ways. That sounds like good stuff right there. Okay, but the passage continues. It says, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing. The thing is going to be shorthand for those three things that I just mentioned. Inquiring of the Lord, settling disputes, and then equipping the people to see and understand God's ways. This thing that you're doing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Okay, so that's, that's Jethro's concern. And he says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. He basically says, keep doing the thing. He just reiterated the three things that Moses says, here's what I'm doing. But he says it in, in light of verse 21. Moreover... Look for able men from all the people. And they, have, have, they need to have three characteristics. Men who fear God, men who are trustworthy, and men who hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. And they will bear this burden... Still a burden, but they will bear this burden, the burden of the thing, with you. And Mozart, Jethro says this in verse 23. Here's the promise if you'll listen to your father-in-law. If you do this, first of all, God will direct you. That's a good thing, Moses. You need direction. Secondly, you'll be able to endure. And third, all this people will go to their place in peace. Okay, so let's kind of draw out the essence of this passage. And then we're going to look at just a few of the little uh, phrases here. First of all, key verses are verses 17 and 18. What you're doing is not good. And we're not talking about the thing. The thing is good. Inquiring of the Lord, um, judging disputes, and equipping the people, that's really good stuff. What's not good about it is you're doing that by your 
self. You're doing it, this heavy thing, this burden is not for just you. Verse 21 is another key verse. Look for able men then from all the people, men who fear God, men who are trustworthy, and men who hate a bribe. Okay, and then this, this direction is place these men over the people, over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. And then in verse 22 and 23, they will bear the burden with you. And three things, God will direct you, you'll be able to, endure, to, able to endure, and third, all these people will go to their place in peace. Man, that's some really, really good promises. Okay, so we're going to look at just a few phrases. First of all, we're going to look at what you're doing is not good. Now, I want you to consider for a moment who the you is of what you are doing is not good. We're talking about Moses. Okay, if you know the story of Moses, you know that Moses is officially a stud. I mean, like a serious faith hero, a serious faith stud. He, I'm convinced that there must have been some editors who wrote the first five books of the Bible, at least weighing in some additional points, because somewhere in there, we believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but somewhere in there it says he's the most humble man on the face of the earth. If Moses had written that, that would officially disqualify him, right? But I have to love that it says it. I have to believe that God's word is completely inspired and completely true and have to believe this guy is the most humble leader on the face of the earth. I have to believe he's one of the finest leaders that has ever led. But he says, Moses, what you're doing isn't good. Moses, we're not talking about a sin issue. We're just talking about a design issue. We're talking about a structural issue. What you are doing by yourself is not good. As fine as you are, as humble as you are, as great a leader as you are, and what you're doing is not good. You will wear yourself out, and you will wear the people out. You're going to end up with an exasperated people who are needing the three parts of that thing that we talked about. Inquiring of the Lord, disputes judged, and then to be equipped with God's ways and plans. He says it's too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now... I don't know at what point the work became too heavy for three elders at Crosspoint Fellowship. I can't put it on the calendar. If I were to guess, I would say it would be around three years ago. But it sure enough did. It became too heavy for three men. If I were to put my finger on one thing to explain some of what we went through as a church this last fall, it would be this one thing. Three men who were worn out and couldn't see straight. That's my view on it. That's my estimate. It fits with this passage. We had officially worn ourselves out. And I think that y'all probably over the course of that season had a little taste of what it felt like to be worn out yourselves. Three men who do love each other, three men who do love the Lord, couldn't hear each other anymore, couldn't understand each other anymore, and it had officially become too heavy for us, and it affected our relationship, our working relationship together. It has become, though, in, in the season since then, by God's grace and mercy, it became crystal clear to us that we needed more men to help us carry something that's heavy, that's good and heavy, that's a burden. He calls it a burden. 
We needed some guys to help us carry the burden. This thing, your burdens, your struggles, your faith, your equipping, your marriages, your parenting, your worship. We needed some men to help us carry this because it is heavy. Whenever you guys struggle in your marriages, for the last 15 years, I know three guys that have carried it with you. When you guys have had difficulties with a job situation, three men have carried it with you. When someone's been sick or ailing, I know of at least three men. I know there's more, but at least three men that have carried that struggle with you. And it is a heavy burden indeed. Paul, when he was writing to the church at Corinth, he described some of the difficulties of what it meant to be an apostle and a church planter. And listen to what he adds at the, at, at the end of his list. He says, I have, I, I, he's talking about all these things he's gone through. I've gone through greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night, a day, I was adrift at sea. Again, don't ever get on a boat with, with Paul. Never, ever, under any circumstances. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the set sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Man, this is quite a list. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Man, Paul lists it up there with his list of shipwrecks and imprisonments and beatings. It is a heavy, heavy burden and work, and it's not to be carried alone not when able men can join in the work. Many hands make light work. Many hands make light work. I love hearing myself even saying that. Verse 21 that comes from chapter 18 says, Look for able men from all the people. I'm imagining what Jethro's potluck dinner must have felt like. You know, as he's sitting around with Moses and he's recounting, you know, Moses is recounting all that God has done and they're having that potluck and they're fellowshipping and they're talking and they're enjoying all that God has done. And the elders of Israel are there, the representatives of the tribes. They're here at this meal. I wonder if Jethro was looking around the table thinking, man, there's some salty, potent guys here at this meal. <laughs> Look at these guys, man. Not only do they have great stories, but there's some wisdom here at this table as we sit and eat bread. This is the night before he gave this instruction to Moses, or at least briefly before he gave this instruction to Moses. And I just want to tell you, people of God at Crosspoint Fellowship, there will be some able men who fit these criteria ordained to the work today. The men we're ordaining to the work today are not the only men that are able in our body, though. I want to say that right up front. This is a day where we're sort of putting them on display and we're, we're commending them, commissioning them to something. But it gives me a great opportunity to commend the other men in this church. First of all, I want to commend our church body for your movement in nomination and how you went about this, this season. Okay, you've moved well. Okay, but I want to commend the other able men in our church. Man, they're some of the finest men that I have ever known that are serving our body well, faithfully and quietly, 
as deacons in our body. And there are men in our body that are deacons unrecognized. There's a deacon appointment coming soon because there are men that are moving faithfully and moving well, able men in our body. These men that we're presenting today are not the only able men in our body. There are a host of them here. And there's sometimes the thought, too, that I want to just shoot this thing because it's a false idea. This thought that deacons sort of promote into this elder role. And they're two very distinct and different roles. So please don't ever think that. Some of the finest men I have ever known, men that I would follow wherever to do anything, were men that were deacons, including my own dad. Man, it's a fine, fine calling. Able men, though, in this church abound. And there are some men, too, who are in this church that are, would be qualified as able men, called able men, that are elders in the making. Men that we're not appointing today that also, too, is likely coming soon, another vetting process, an elder appointment. We have a wealth of leadership in this church. There are those that are at bat as elders and deacons right now, and some more that are joining us today, and there are those that are on deck just getting warmed up. I think you should expect to see a deacon appointment before long and probably another round of elders sooner than later. This will become routine for Crosspoint Fellowship. Amen. Does anybody else need to hear that? I know three guys that do. <laughs> Gracious. I need to say this to you, people of God. Brad and Scott and I should have led in this sooner. Would that Jethro would have visited three years ago. I think Jethro did show up, though, here eventually. Maybe we'll call Brian Noble, Brian Jethro Noble. Maybe we'll put it on Brian. Maybe we'll put it on the Holy Spirit through a series of circumstances. God showed us what we needed to be doing. And thankfully, we're looking, and today we are calling. We're calling some able men, men who fear God, are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. I have two other passages for you to turn to today, and the first is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So go ahead and turn there. I'll give you a second to turn there. I want you to see what I'm having you turn to. 1 Timothy chapter 3. First and 2 Timothy are written to a pastor, and they're written in large part about what, an elder, what, what you're supposed to be doing, Pastor Timothy. And among those things you're supposed to be doing, Pastor Timothy, is identifying and calling more elders. And they should fit these qualifications, beginning in verse 3. The saying is trust, or beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, in our Bibles, the word overseer is used interchangeably with pastor and elder. Okay, we're using those terms interchangeably in this body. Okay, because in the original language, those are used interchangeably. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, pastor, or elder, he aspires to or he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, pastor, or elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if, it, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay, in some ways, this passage is a more detailed version, kind of the nuts and bolts, inner workings of the three things that Jethro told Moses he needed to be looking for. There's just a more detailed version of that ancient version. Now, let me just say this. As, we just, as you're looking down this list, I just hope that there's, there's like a real honesty as you're looking at that list. And I just want to tell you, I'm going to be really honest at the, as I'm looking at that list. I don't know this man. It doesn't mean we just pitch it and say, oh, well, if he doesn't exist, we're just not going to consider it. I don't know the man that meets these qualifications perfectly. Let me rephrase that. I don't know the man that meets these qualifications perfectly. This is an incredibly high bar. An incredibly high bar. When Paul was speaking of what it meant, what it was like to... um, um, Let me see if I can find this passage. Yes. When Paul was speaking of what it meant for him as he's teaching and preaching the gospel, as he's fulfilling this sort of role as an overseer and and elder and pastor and church planter, he said this. He said, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What a noble passage. The passage right in front of that, he says, who is sufficient for these things? There's honesty in this guy, Paul, where he's saying, man, this this is what we're called to. These qualifications that we look at, man, they are potent, and that bar is extremely high. And as a men of sincerity, we speak in Christ, but we should be conditioned by this reality. Who is sufficient for these things? Who really is sufficient to preach of a perfect Savior and a scandalous gospel and grace that is absolutely and completely undeserved? Who is sufficient perfectly and absolutely and completely? Man, that sort of honesty should condition this list, and I encourage you maybe as you're thinking about the six men that we're going to be ordaining and calling today you may be in different places on these men chances are most of you are like ah man this sounds great looking down these list of guys i'm like yeah man home run awesome great job elders others of you are saying man i'm really excited about these guys but like really concerned about these guys what were y'all thinking I told you seriously, we're going to be really honest today. Be really open. And let me speak to those who are in different places. Let me just tell you, if you have a list of people, you're like, I'm really excited about these, but these over here I'm really concerned about, chances are there's somebody else that's really excited about the ones you're concerned about and really concerned about the ones you're excited about. Right? Okay, so I'm going to equip you and help you as we speak into this. Okay? Chances are some of you are cheering for some and disappointed maybe by others. And there are some that are being cheered for who are disappointed by, who are disappointing others. A lot of that, I believe, most of that has to do with this crazy season that we've just gone through. I know it's not all, but I know a lot of that has to do with this crazy season that we just went through, I believe, with everything in me. My encouragement to you as a church family, I've not spoken much on this last season, and my encouragement to you on this point right now is just to encourage you to really, maybe, maybe this is a time where everyone in our body just gets a big fat mulligan. I mean, just gets a walk. 
like everybody, for all the stuff that you feel like, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they did this. I can't believe he did this. I can't believe, what was he thinking when he did this? What was he or they didn't say this to me. Maybe everybody should just get a big old pass. There's actually a word for that. You know, it's, it's not a mulligan. It's not a pass. It's not a walk. It's actually the word. Actually, it's a biblical word. The word is grace. You know, they don't deserve it. That's what grace is. When that pass and that walk and that mulligan is given to somebody that doesn't deserve it, that's called grace. Man, we've had a crash course in grace. What a great season for us as we can now move in grace, giving these men or giving anyone you may have concerns about. Not necessarily just, we're not going to talk about anything ever again. But like this redemptive conditioning that says, man, I've forgiven you already. I can't make sense of it. But I'm not going to lean on my understanding. I'm going to entrust this to him. And in all ways, I'm going to acknowledge him. And he will make our path straight. What a great promise. If there's some stuff that happened in this last season you can't understand, then welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. But I've officially offered passes because I need gobs of them. <laughs> Man, what a great opportunity we have as a church. To walk in grace. I ask you to make this part of this season. Looking for a path forward. Man, we need it. <laughs> you might feel like, man, things are just going to be so different. I hope so. I hope they're going to be different. Are we going to find ourselves in this mess again? <laughs> they have to be different. Of course they're going to be different. We're maturing as a church. We're moving into a new place as a people of God. This is exciting. I trust it's going to be better with able, vetted, called, ordained men joining us in this work. Man, I thought about an image or like illustration that might help you. It might help you with the whole season, nomination and vetting and all of this and where people sort of fit different places for you. Here's an illustration I thought might help, might help you. Think of the nomination and the vetting process as one that, of, of a group of men, in, in this case three guys, Brad and Scott, with your help in nominating. Okay, are trying to identify musicians who are ready to play as part of an orchestra. Okay, I'm going to explain that, but I want you to sort of grab that image. Identifying musicians, people who are able to play. There are lots of people who can play instruments that are musicians, but they may not be orchestra uh, musicians. Okay, There's a key qualifier, musicians who are able to play as part of an orchestra. Okay, That's sort of the first ingredient there, that they are able, in fact, to play as part of a team. That's important. Some of the men weren't appointed yet because we don't know how they play as part of a team yet. The men that are being appointed today, we have a good sense. These are team players. These are musicians who can play as part of an orchestra. But here's the second part of that image. No one musician can play all the instruments well. I mean, some guys can. I know a few guys like Clint. He can pick up any instrument and just go to town. I know some other guys that come to mind. They're just able to play any instrument. It's crazy. But most of the rest of us... Okay, or most of the people that are really good at something, they're like first chair in one thing. Okay, and they're all different. Okay, thankfully, that's what makes up an orchestra. If everybody's first chair in violin, it's not an orchestra. Okay, all of our elders, these men that we're pointing today are very different. For example, not a single elder that's being appointed today quite has hair like Greg Fields. <laughs> He's first chair in hair. 
hands down, and we all know it. I mean, there's no negotiating. I mean, we don't have to deliberate about it. We know that. And these men bring different things to the table. So let me sort of go back to this image. But let me tell you this. As we deliberated and as we talked about this, or we talked through this vetting process, it was surprising to me how often Brad and Scott and I, one of the three of us, in some cases all of us, were saying, well, if it was just this one guy, we wouldn't appoint him. But it's the tandem, the complement of guys. If it's just this one guy, we wouldn't appoint him. And I started thinking more about that. And I'm thinking, if it was just Ben, you'd be in trouble. If it was just Brad, you'd be in trouble. If it was just Scott, you'd be in trouble. Because I don't have all those things. I'm first chair in a few things. Brad's a first chair in a few things that are different from things that I'm first chair in. And Scott compliments me in a way that's greater than the sum of our parts. And when we add new musicians into the orchestra, we're talking about some really cool music. But each of us plays different parts. And it's surprising how often we said, if it was just this one guy, we probably wouldn't appoint him. Not because there wasn't anything great about him. Because we saw some insufficiencies and some inadequacies in certain areas. But then when we panned out and we looked at the group of guys, we're like, oh, whatever's lacking over here is in spades over here. Man, that's, that's community. That's church. It's a little micro version of what church looks like with combinations of giftings that fit together where you're greater than the sum of your parts. That's what a marriage looks like. Anybody married exactly married to their, their exact copy? Anybody married to a woman that, or a man that's exactly like you? Marriage counseling, we'll, we'll meet right afterward and help you with marriage counseling. <laughs> Hopefully you're a complement of one another that comes together to be greater than the sum of your parts. Man, if anything, this is a great argument against a single pastor model church. Can God use a single pastor model church? Absolutely. But man, I don't know how they're going to hold it together. <laughs> I mean, with just one guy? When you've got nine guys, you have nine different musicians, nine different parts that are playing, nine different uh, combinations of wisdom, gifting, experiences that come together. And the flip side is you have nine different versions of weaknesses or besetting sins that are made up in the others. Man, I encourage you, if you're looking at this right now, you're like, man, I'm kind of focused on this one person or focused on those two people or whatever. I want you to encourage. I want to encourage this thought. These men together are going to be greater than the sum of their parts, we believe. If it was just one man, we wouldn't appoint any one man. Because I'm not qualified for that one pastor role, nor is any other person on this list. Together, we're greater than the sum of our parts. Wherever one guy is weak, other guys are stronger. And likewise, and that's true in gifting, that's true in sin struggles, that's true in shortcomings, it's true in personality differences, and that's true in life experiences and applied wisdom. These are able men, though, musicians ready to play in the orchestra. People of God listening very closely to your voices and your concerns and your affirmation and bathed in your prayers, Brad and Scott and I fasted and prayed, seeking the Lord's will on an orchestra that will together make good music. That was our goal, and we believe wholeheartedly that God has done that. The passage continues in in Exodus chapter 18, place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, and of fifties, and of tens. Okay, let me just take a moment to just explain who and what these men are. What these men are and what these men aren't. Okay, they are not your chiefs. Okay, pastors and elders in your church are not your chiefs. The congregation now has far more authority than the congregation did that side of the cross. 
right? That first part of the thing. You remember those three things, inquiring of the Lord? Realize now you don't have to come to me to inquire of the Lord. You don't have to come to any of these nine, to any of the other eight to inquire of the Lord. From the least to the greatest, if you are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can boldly approach the throne of Christ. The congregation has a different authority now than they did then. We don't need chiefs now. Now, the second two parts of the thing we still do, dealing with disputes or helping marital matters or friendship matters or work matters or a case where there might be some wisdom that needs to be spoken into. And the third thing, equipping you to see God's ways. Man, that's what we do. What these men do, look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is the last place I was going to have you turn today. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. This passage kind of help you, I think will help you kind of differentiate between maybe different roles within the elder body, elder council, elder board. I'm not sure what we're going to call it just yet. Any of the above would be fine. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay, first of all, let me speak to that word rule. I just said there are not going to be any chiefs. You're like, wow, that kind of sounds like rule. Let me explain what that word actually means. That word in our circles sounds like a really heavy hand, sounds like a, someone telling you what to do. Sounds, I mean, if you had a boss that was ruling you, you'd be like, man, that boss is terrible. Okay? We're not talking rule in the sense that we would understand it in our context. We're talking rule in the sense that they use it. Rule is, word, is a word that's used in other places in our Bible. I'll share just a few of those passages. In Romans chapter 12... Paul is speaking about different gifts and ways within the body that people serve differently. He says the one who exhorts, exhort in, in, his, in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. That's that same word that's used for rule. That's what the word means, leads. It's used also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He's speaking of the elders in the local body. Over you meaning that they're leading you. That word rule, that's the same word that's used over there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. He must manage his own household well. Manage is the word, the same word for rule. So if that word is scary for you, then just use a different word. It's okay. Manage or lead. Okay, that's what the elders in this passage are, are what he's referring to here. Let the elders who lead or manage well be considered worthy of, du of double honor, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. Now, this helps us kind of differentiate maybe some different roles. The double honor is for those who rule well, okay? Especially those who rule via teaching and preaching. Okay, that implies that some elders rule or lead or manage not necessarily through teaching and preaching. Every elder must be able to teach or preach, but every elder may not teach or preach. Okay, you're going to see of these nine guys, the six that are added to the current three, you may see some of these guys from time to time that are teaching children, that are teaching a, a, a life group, and some of them you may never see in the pulpit. And they're ruling in different ways. They're leading and managing and um, guiding and directing in different ways. This shows, this passage shows that elders can serve in different ways ways. Some of the things that these men will do together, these men will be making daily decisions while listening to the body and bringing maybe course correcting and big decisions before us to make together. 
That's a product of some of the things that we've been considering as leadership, this congregational authority conversation, that the congregation has an authority. The congregation has a voice. The keys of the kingdom weren't passed to the leadership of the church. The keys of the kingdom and the authority that go with it were passed to the local church and the congregation. So you're going to see, hopefully, these men making daily decisions while listening to the body and bringing big decisions before us to make together. Ruling and leading and managing in daily matters that make life together better for the body. Elders are to lead a responsible, accountable, and equipped congregation. That's a good way to kind of piece together some of the things that we consider during this season, this congregational authority conversation, and what we're doing this morning. Elders lead a responsible, accountable, and equipped congregation with an authority unique to the office. Now, one final comment about this, this sort of design. Unlike Moses and the chiefs, you might remember that passage where he's talking about appoint these chiefs, and then in, in the little matters, the chiefs will tend to them, and the big matters, you'll bring them to Moses. Okay? It's also different for us than, than that design as well. We don't follow that sort of design. There's not a lead elder. There's not a lead pastor. We have a board of peers These nine men, these three current pastors, are inviting six men into this role today as fellow pastors, as fellow elders and fellow overseers, because this is Christ's church, and these men will be her under-shepherds on equal footing, with equal voice, with first-chair gifting and wisdom and insight. Brad Gallion, Greg Fields, Mike Cardwell, Drew Livingood, Morris Bean, Bill Ruth, Brad Cardwell, Scott Sutton, and Ben McGraw leading and serving together. And man, here's the promise from verse 23. All this people will also go to their place in peace. I don't know about you, that sounds kind of good to me. All these people, will not, not some of these people, all these people will go to their place in peace. Instead of a worn out people, or instead of a worn out few, all will go to their place in peace. Okay, now what we're going to do with these men in these next few minutes, we are really doing one thing that's going to have a couple of parts, uh, really just one part, um, but let me kind of give you a bird's eye view of what's actually happening. We may have, may have heard this word over the course of the morning, the word ordination. It might be a strange word you hadn't heard before. Let me just kind of share with you. It's not a made up word. It's not a, 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 it's actually a biblical word. It's a word that comes from our Bibles and it's really a beautiful word when you understand the meaning. Exodus chapter 28, verse 40, 41, uh, when, the, uh, when Aaron's sons were appointed to the work of priesthood, okay, there were some garments that were made for them, among them coats, sashes, and, ga- and caps. And in verse 41 of chapter 28, it says, you shall put them, the coats, sashes, and caps on Aaron's sons and on Aaron and, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Now, that word ordain actually means to fill their hands. I, I love the imagery. Brad and Scott are like this, and in the next couple of minutes, these six guys are going to come up here, and we're going to go, okay, here, we're going to fill your hands with the shared work. It's a beautiful image. Ordaining means we are filling your hands, Brad, Gallion, Greg Fields, Mike Cardwell, Drew Livingood, Morris Bean, and Bill Ruth with a good burden. It's a burden, but, man, it's a fine, fine burden, a good work. This 
thing that we've been called to do. And we're going to do this with prayer and the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands is, uh, is not something that's a, a contemporary thing. It's an ancient thing. It actually goes all the way back into the story of Israel. The nation of Israel laid hands on the Levites to cleanse them for work in the tabernacle. Numbers chapter 8, verse 10 says, When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Okay, Moses also laid his hands on Joshua when he passed the mantle of leadership to Joshua to lead his people into the promised land. Fast forward to the, to the New Testament. When deacons were appointed, they laid hands on them. They were set apart by the, before the, the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. In Acts chapter 13, there were some men that were called to a special task, and they laid hands on these men, Barnabas and Saul. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Timothy is reminded of the gift that was given to him at his ordination. And the passage reads like this. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. That's about to happen in front of you. Six men will have the hands laid on them by a council of elders. This thing is an ancient practice. Now let me explain to you what it means. This is kind of cool. You're already in 1 Timothy, hopefully. Just look at verse Chapter 5, verse 17. It's a passage I just read, and I'm going to just read a few verses beyond it. And then we're going to lay hands on these men and pray for them. Listen to this passage. I just read it, but I want you to see it in context. It's about elders. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, we're talking about the work of an elder. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He's still talking about what are you doing with these elders. And look what he says in verse 22. Do not be hasty in, laying, in, in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Okay. We've been expeditious, but we hadn't been hasty. I mean, we've been expeditious. This has been a crazy month and a, a week. Is that all it's been? It feels like it's been longer because we've been busy. But we hadn't been hasty, but we have been expeditious. I want you to notice that the laying on of hands um, is sort of coupled with taking part in them. I want to read a particular passage because I want you to understand exactly what's happening here in the laying on of hands. He says, don't be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. They're sort of put together, laying, laying on of hands and taking part in something. What I want you to see, this is really beautiful. This filling up picture of what's about to happen, filling their hands, and this. This is the opposite of what Pilate did after he pronounced judgment on Jesus, he went and washed his hands. I'm washing my hands of this outcome. I'm abrogating myself of any responsibility for what's about to take place. This is the opposite of that. When Brad and Scott and I lay our hands on these men, we are commissioning them to the work, filling their hands, and we're commending them to you. And what we're doing, too, is we're saying we're taking part in their fruitfulness and their failures. Because we're together. We're going to be in this thing together. We're with you. We're not going to wash our hands of one another. We're in this thing to walk through the hard stuff together. Man, it's beautiful. 
commissioning them to the work, filling their hands, and commending them to you. Brad and Scott and I will pray for these men if you guys will come on up. Brad Gallion, Greg Fields, Mike Cardwell, Drew Livingood, Morris Bean, and Bill Ruth. We don't have any particular order that you need to stand in, but if you would, just stand right here below us. I'm going to be praying for their worship. Scott is going to be praying for uh, their walk. And Brad is going to, be, going to be praying for their ministries. Lord, what a fine, fine morning standing here with fine and able men. Lord, we are thankful for your design in putting together a complement of men that is greater than some of your parts. Lord, I'm thankful for a row of men that are standing here conditioned by this thought who is sufficient for these things. Lord, I pray for their, their worship, Lord, that they would walk dependently. Lord, that they would seek your face as they try and make these decisions and they try and shepherd your people well. Lord, I pray they would be fueled by worship as they bear a burden that is heavy oftentimes. Lord, I pray that they will be conditioned by worship as they fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Lord, I pray they will be conditioned by worship as they come and gather for elder meetings, as they make decisions, as they deliberate, as they talk. I pray they'll be conditioned by worship as they stand before this people and equip and prepare and help the people of God make wise, godly decisions. Lord, I pray that they're conditioned by worship as they go home and they visit with their wives and their families. Lord, I pray for their walk, that they will love you relentlessly. I pray that your Holy Spirit will hold them close and keep them in Christ Jesus. Use them, Lord, for your glory. Praying these things in Christ's precious name.